This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. What better time to talk about a dystopian novel than during a pandemic? But in Patrick Allington's Rise and Shine, we're never quite sure what the crisis is. So, Patrick, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me, David. Good to be with you. Now, the actual cause of the crisis is obscure. No one who survived could really say whether it was a single big catastrophe or a series of smaller messes or if it was just the slow grind of excess. Your focus is not on the disaster, it's on the solution. Yeah, that's right. And and when I started thinking about this book, David, I, I really wasn't that interested in working out why the exact reasons why uh, the earth collapses and most of the 8 billion people are no longer with us. Uh, I was more interested in looking 30 or so years into the future from that moment and, and thinking about what happens to those people who survive. How do they get on with their lives? How do they maybe even start to think about the possibility of prospering again in a new way? Part of the solution that is discovered is war. Mm-hmm. And this is conducted between the two city-states of Rise and Shine. Now, this is where we could possibly draw parallels with Orwell's 1984, in as much as war is peace. But no one in the war you have going on is actually meant to get killed. No one's meant to get killed, and neither of the city-states are, are trying to conquer each other. So no one's trying to steal each other's resources, uh, any of those things we might think about as as reasons for war. No one's trying to position themselves so that they've got a geopolitical foothold in on some island in, in some ocean um, so that they can claim that little bit of territory. The war exists literally so that the soldiers of uh, the two city-states can fight each other, not in mortal combat, but... Uh, with the purpose of injuring each other graphically, but in a non, uh, in a way that doesn't lead to any of them actually dying. All of those acts of war are, are filmed uh, and edited and presented to the populations of, of the two city-states of Rise and Shine for the purpose of people watching and literally feeding off that war footage. So the earth is poisoned, there's no food and drink. These last humans have found a way to subsist by watching this war footage and by empathising with the soldiers, with by feeling compassion for them. We could actually say that the war actually provides a form of sustenance. Yeah, literally, yeah. This is both comic and macabre. People actually feed on the documentary footage, which in some ways, what we do today in terms of sating ourselves on live shows. Appearances are also important. Walker, who has saved humanity, is dying, but he manages to keep up appearances. So all of this notion Mm -hmm. of maintaining face is incredibly important. You're actually commenting in some ways on the role of the media in society today. Yeah, I think so. The role of the media and the way that everything seems to become in some ways some sort of performance. Um, the act of producing a, a soundbite that's an acceptable soundbite is uh, an act of delivering real content, but it's it's a, it's also a, a performance. If, if you do it well, it's, it's a good soundbite and more people might hear it. So yeah, there, there's something about that scenario that, that's very much rooted in our, our real world. The thing with Walker, he and... Um, 
his chief collaborator, Barton, and she is the, the leader of the other city-state. Uh, the two of them hatched this solution to the last people's survival. Um, they, they found the way to have people feed in this way. Um, so, you know, he's heavily invested in his own legacy as, as much as anything, but he is heavily invested in the continuing survival of, of those people. He feels that responsibility. Meanwhile, as you say, he's ill. Um, he has uh, a wasting disease uh, because he finds he can no longer get enough sustenance from watching this war footage. Uh, he is one of a number of people throughout the, the communities uh, who are experiencing this illness. Uh, he doesn't want anyone to know that, he, that he's got it, and he doesn't really want um, the population at Wyatt to, to know that, that anybody is, is getting ill in this way. Um, he sees it as a danger to the, uh, to the ongoing survival and the, and the ongoing stability now, what is interesting is your use of language here. You've already mentioned sound bite. Mm -hmm. We also have live feeds from mm -hmm. the trenches, raw footage and of which we can eat our fill. So there's this rather comic use of language going through here, which points out just how associated feeding and the media actually mm -hmm. are. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and if we sat down and watched 24 hours of media coverage on anything, we could lose count of the number of war metaphors uh, we, we might come across in subject matter that's got nothing to do with war. Uh, but but on food and drink, uh, I mean, that was really the starting point for for me thinking about about this story to to try and imagine a world where the earth was so poisoned that that we couldn't bake a loaf of bread, we couldn't drink water, uh, we couldn't go to go on a macca's run, uh, that because we couldn't uh, everything that we might choose to eat is is either no longer available to us uh, or if it is there, it's poison. But also then you've got the media as serving as that food and drink, which it literally mm -hmm. has yeah. become in our society. We're taking in so much media, living yeah. of it, but it's not necessarily providing the sustenance we need. No, and it, uh, the 24 news cycle for me works that way. It comes in, we consume it, we move on to the next day's story and the next days and the next days and the next days and the next days. Not often enough connecting those dots, uh, maybe, and thinking ahead beyond this week, next week, the next election, think, thinking ahead much further than that. Uh, and I, I don't think this is a media specific problem I, you know I, th I think as a as communities as societies as, a, as individuals certainly speaking for myself you know I, I find myself caught up in that in that moment and uh, living my life and, and thinking my thoughts to that rhythm you get also another notion about the idea and the ideology that is imparted so for example the city of rise has a mantra of kindness and tenderness we will break them in our tender way and in fact you've got a lovely interrogation scene where, which is full of kindness, if you wouldn't mind telling us. So this becomes the sort of overarching philosophy. But societies in general have these ideas of themselves. So, for example, Australia has the lucky country, makeshift mm -hmm. fair go, the pub mm -hmm. test. It's a reductive look at an identity that is promoted continually. And this is going on in RISE. There's a lot of surveillance within the, the city-state of RISE. There's cameras everywhere. The authorities decide they want to follow, get, get followed. Uh, those things go on and go on constantly. Uh, when people appear to do wrong or are, are engaged in acts of dissent, 
um, they are pulled in and sometimes interrogated. Uh, but that, that surveillance and that interrogation is, is conducted with something resembling principles of, of fairness and in particular principles of politeness and niceness remaining at their core. Now, on one, one level, that's artifice, it's false, surveillance is surveillance. But there is a genuine sense of kindness and compassion and, and a sense that no one should be left behind uh, built into the ethos of the community and into the thinking of leaders like Walker and Barton. And I, I think it comes back to the sort of the core foundation of, of the community is, is that they are a group of survivors. And the veneer of democracy that hangs over the city-state of, of Rise it's not really real, but everybody's in on that joke, uh, including everyday citizens just going about their days. E- everybody knows that, that that's the case. How mm-hmm. true is that of mm-hmm. our society today, that all of what we've got going on, mm-hmm. all talks and discussions, mm-hmm. are but a facade? Maybe there it's a bit of both, um, and maybe that's the case for, for Rise as well. There's uh, a lot of facade, there's there's lots of uh, paint over paint over paint over paint, um, but there's a real genuine conversation going on as well. I I think it's a bit of both. Another interesting thing is, of course, that there are problems that start to emerge in Rise. All of a sudden, there are five people that have actually died on the front line. Things are starting to unravel and one has to find a solution. There are also Mm. people that are rebelling against the stand that has been taken by Walker and Barton, who must be kept in check. But it then becomes a morphing of the mantra of kindness and simply a realigning, but maintaining the facade so that survival can continue. Yeah, and that that moment where it becomes apparent that uh, uh, several soldiers have have died on the front, um, and they haven't died in battle scenes, that they've died for various other reasons, but there is nothing more unacceptable in in this community than needless death. Uh, That sense of loss drives a lot of what happens uh, in in the city-state and the way people, including the leaders, uh, behave. As some people start to rebel, that puts a lot of pressure on the assumptions that the community uses to carry on. So as a final question, how seriously should we take this novel as a reflection on the behaviour in current day society? That's a hard question for me to answer, David. Um, I don't see it as a book with a with you know with an answer or a slogan. If, and if I had that, I'd uh, you know I'd just write that instead of bothering to write a novel. What I do hope is that you know I, I've tried to ask some questions and maybe ask some questions differently about about our future. I'm mired in my own uncertainty about what the future holds. So I don't think I've got an answer or a or a solution or a specific suggestion. I'm looking at my own sense of on the one hand trying to remain hopeful about our our long-term future um you know as a species Uh, and on the other hand thinking you know in some ways it looks pretty grim and trying to reckon with that no but i do think it does provide us with an opportunity to reflect on how our society today is functioning and how real some of the political arguments are how much of it is a facade and keeping that all in balance. So the novel is Rise and Shine, the author, Patrick Allington, and it's from Scribe Publishers. So Patrick, thank you for talking with me today. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks, David and Patrick. And now it's time for Jan and Danny. Would you drive three days on an unsealed road just to go to work? In Return to Dust, Danny Powell has her character Amber doing just that. Welcome, Danny. Welcome to Published or Not. Thank you for having me, Jan. So you better tell us what your character Amber does. So Amber's uh, lived in the in the central desert for about 10 years, but she's been away. And so the, the novel starts where she returns. And um, we're not sure why, but then we pick up that she's, she's going to work on a remote community for a couple of weeks, but otherwise she's based in town. And so it's never disclosed exactly what she does, but it's this idea, I guess, you get that she works with communities, doing work with young people in a creative way. So it's sort of a, you know, the youth arts kind of work. On this road trip, Amber stops at a community she knows and is drawn back into the events. And there is a comment about life being football and funerals. Is it really like that? Yeah, I think um, so much of the social gathering that goes on and the, and the joy of, of remote communities um, is often around the football and everyone travels. And I guess, I guess there's the, the like, the similarity there or the connection there is that people are travelling for football a lot and people are travelling for funerals. But also it's that sense of the joy and also that, that sadness and that, that people are always telling the news, you know, here we are and, oh, so how are you? And people start to talk about who's passed and you're very aware very soon of, of how much death there is on account of poor health and uh, that becomes the sort of the mundane or the, the everyday, this is what the stuff of life is, but not that it's limited to that, yes. But she meets some women at the football and she agrees to drive them. Now, who are these women? Ah, so because she's worked um, out in, in and out, so she's not based in community, but she goes and does these stints, which is a very common um, up in central Australia, actually, to do what we call bush work. So to go out for a couple of weeks or to for a month, etc. So she, because she's done this for a long time, she's got to know people and communities very well. So um, although she's on her way somewhere else, because she stops and is sort of drawn in mm. to, um, by these young women to you know, drive her somewhere, which is very common as well, um, then she ends up meeting up with um, a family who's quite dear to her that she's spent time with. So that's the family that sort of becomes central to the, to the novel at that point in that, in that place. Well, it was Lena, the grandmother, who was her initial language teacher, then her, uh, Lena's daughter, Jennifer, and then Jennifer's two daughters, Brianna and Cheyenne. That Cheyenne, what a gem of a character she is. <laughs> so there's another older woman that they take in the car, Mavis. She's an acclaimed artist. And I just love that whole way that Amber experiences the way that Mavis paints. Okay. It's a silent time, is it? You know, not a time yeah. of concentration. You know, Amber just sort of sits and watches while Mavis yeah. sings. Mavis is also a healer and she sees that Amber needs healing. I, I'd like you to read from page 97. You've been lost your spirit, must be. Now the old lady's words punched the damned up grief inside her. 
Amber tries to hold herself together, filled with feelings of embarrassment and shame. She's never cried in front of anyone, and she's never lost her composure in all these years coming here. Like other white fellas, her role has been to fix things, to manage things, to make herself invisible, to help people, not to ask for help herself. But the force is too great. Sadness rushes through her like rain, until unable to resist, she becomes it. She is the river come down, banks collapsed and flowing now, a torrent of clay-coloured foam and latte-like froth, scouring out the sand and silt and dredging up the rubbish. Nothing is spared. Not the broken glass, nor the beer cans, the plastic nappies and the discarded clothing now bloated and floating like ghosts. Here it is, all thrown together, lurching forward in full flow. Her mother's shoulders crumbling, her father's broken voice on the phone, her sick brother who can't stand up, who says, I've got to be able to walk, and then falls down. The woman from the funeral who collapses, sobbing with grief, and the child of the high seas who screams with a strangled voice, help, help. All of these different aspects of grief come into this book, uh, but it's Amber's brother who's died nearly 12 months ago. How would you describe how she's dealing with her grief? I think for her, she, she was very closed. Um, there's an analogy in the prologue about, um, oh, that's going back to the, the tears of the Heliades, the name, her name is Amber, and it comes from that story. And what happened was the brother, their brother died and the four sisters cried so much they turned to wood. And I guess I was using that idea that she'd closed herself off. In my own Western culture, this is the way to get on with things and, and to move on. And so that's what she's attempted to do. So she tried to, you know, go back to work and work with other people's um, grief and other people's um, stories and sort of shut herself down. So I think that the inevitable happens that when she's surrounded by this and when she's approached with such kindness and love by this old nunkery healer woman, it's, it bursts. And, um, I, you know, I drew the analogy of the river coming down. So here it all is, all the grief, all the things that she's picked up along the way that she's tried to kind of compartmentalise and um, catalogue. Um, but in fact, this is her just feeling and it's not, it's not, it's not contained. It's not going to be pretty. It's, it's mm -hmm. going to just be what it is, all the rubbish. Well, she had always learned from her father, grief was something you kept to yourself. But of course, mm -hmm. at the funeral of this old man, there is communal crying. There's, oh. you know, it's, it's loud and, uh, well, it's very different. But there is a similarity in the Pitanjara language. What's a Kumanara? So Kumanara is just oh, it's a word that is used in the place of somebody's name because when people pass away, it's respectful not to use the name of that person who has passed or any a name that's similar actually so if a name that sounded a little bit like it then you wouldn't use that name either or a place name that sounded like the person who passed so, so we never know amber's brother's name all through no, you don't you don't mm. amber travels on to where her work will be only to find out that it may not happen there why 
Mm. Um, because there is a sorry camp in that community and um, she was aware of that before she went. But it's just, um, I was just thinking, you know, this is written probably about a time that's maybe 10 years ago because a lot of the communities now have actually got mobile phone range. But that's quite new um, and she might have rung ahead. But the, there was a sort of a trying to work out what's happening with a funeral, whether it's going to be or not. So people are in a place of waiting for this to happen. But when she goes there, she's kind of open to and ready to work if the community say yes, which they wanted. They wanted something to happen for the young people. They were very welcoming. But, of course, this changes when she gets oh, there. And I another guess, um, funeral. Things are constantly changing and displaced. We, we can't control... We can't control the world in a place that's not our own world. And for this man who's died, what's going to happen to his possessions? Oh, so usually the house is cleared out or cleaned out. So sometimes things are, are burned or, or given away, um, this idea of a clearing out, and people usually move on. Yeah, there's place. a quote from the book, place become space again. And I thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. But the sister of the dead man shows Amber the photo that Amber took of her brother, which this sister still cherishes. Now, Amber's got photographs of her own brother that she hasn't been able to look at. But on this long drive, she starts remembering aspects of her, of her brother and it's his ability to collect. And here I'd like Danny Powell to read from page 22, please. For as long as Amber can remember, her brother collected things which he curated and catalogued with meticulous care, mostly things from the natural world, insects pinned to boards, dehydrated plant materials packed into their father's cigar boxes, strips of fungi like orange peel stored in the drawers of his cupboard. He'd stuffed his clothes into two tiny underwear drawers to make room. Every surface in the room they shared was soon transformed into a showcase for one specimen or another. Under the bunk bed, drawers filled with insects, spiders, skeletons, feathers and stones, all displayed in neat and narrow rows, labelled and dated with small squares of white card. As she grew up, a museum grew around her. Many of these objects made it through their childhood and ended up in her brother's house. She'd kept some too, but she'd moved so many times it was hard to hold on to things. Her brother never stopped collecting, collecting and drawing the things he'd found, so that, like Andrew, his house was a temple of beautiful things, each with a story. So we've got to ask, who was Andrew? So Andrew is Amber's friend, a dear friend, um, who is in fact dying, which is the, one of the reasons perhaps I would say one of the strongest reasons for her to return to the dead. Um, and as you know, I'm not sure how much to give away, but he has a, he's something that he asks her when she comes back, something that he'd like her to do for him, which she feels mm -hmm. challenged by and unable to do at the beginning. It's a process of coming to, to be able to, to help her friend. I think... It's wonderful that the climax of this book is Andrew's funeral. And you just think, oh, you know, Amber and myself came a long way in this reading and loved reading about the, the, the physical landscape out there and how people are connected to place and how Amber wanted to find her own place. Mm. She did. 
Yeah, I think it's that. I think so. I think it's a realizing what place really means, and um, is it the external, or is it your 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 own place in the world? Really, that we all have a place in the world, which is to participate. So, in that sense, I think she did. Well, you've certainly found your place in the world there, Danny Powell, author of this book, <laughs> Return to Dust, because you're also been the director of the Northern Territory Writers Festival for the last five years. That's a big commitment. Are there a number of writers up there? Yeah, it's surprisingly Central Australia. One of the reasons I stayed, I guess, is there's a very strong arts community here and a very strong writing community. So very um, nourished as a writer here, not just by the the country itself and the community and the the cultural landscape. There's There's a lot of people writing and it's been such a pleasure, Jan, to, to work on the Writers' Festival these last five years. I'd, I'd been overseas and came back and took it on because it's such a pleasure to bring out more voices and to invite people from interstate to come and join with that and create a kind of a dialogue with this place. Well, I must say I've been to Alice Springs. I haven't been very remotely as the places are, but coming through that gap which is written about so well in your book you really do feel a oh my goodness moment so I thoroughly enjoyed this book and the book I'm talking about is Return to Dust by Danny Powell where there is life there is death but how do different communities and individuals handle grief that's what this wonderful book's about thank you very much Danny thank you so much thank you for your such deep engagement with the work as well thank you for having me You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.